0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this
0: is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney.
1: And hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. In a somewhat surprising move, President Trump has told members of his cabinet to examine whether being a part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, would be a good thing now, as the U.S. continues its battles with China over trade. He has authorized Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer and National Economic Council Director Larry Kudlow to see if the terms would be good for the U.S. To discuss this latest development, we are joined on the phone by Joshua Meltzer, who is a senior fellow in global economy and development program at the Brookings Institution, as well as an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, and also by Ian Sheldon, who is chair in agricultural marketing, trade, and policy at Ohio State University. Joshua, Ian, thank you both for your time today. All the best. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Just your reaction to this announcement first, Joshua.
2: Um, You know, certainly a positive announcement in the sense that um, it was a bad decision to leave the TPP in the first place, um, though um, I don't want to get too excited about this stage. I think it's a long road to travel before this becomes a reality.
1: Ian, what was your uh, reaction?
0: Um, kind of surprised, scratching my head. Um, I agree with uh, what's just been said, that uh, the US, in my opinion, made a, a bad economic mistake uh, to pull out of TPP. But I also agree that it's it's very early, uh, at this point, to see where we're going to go, especially given that the the remaining eleven countries have already started establishing a, a new version of the agreement called the you know the CPTPP. So uh,
1: go back and and uh, let's review for a second, Ian, if we can. When the TPP was brought forward, President Obama was in office, and he was much ver- he was very much in favor of it. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people believe that it was a pretty good deal for the United States at that time. Correct.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the analysis done of it by uh, organizations such as the Peterson Institute showed that there, you know, there would be pretty significant increase in in global GDP, something like 225 billion dollars by 2025. Uh there would have been a reduction on a huge number of tariffs, um adding at about 222 billion dollars worth to world trade and it looked like the U.S. was going to do pretty good, pretty well out of the TPP in terms of service exports and, and, and from my standpoint, for, for the U.S. agricultural sector.
1: So then with this potential announcement, again, we really don't know what it is all going to entail until we see this... Uh play out the benefits for the agriculture sector by doing this now especially in the wake of what we've seen back and forth in the last uh, week or so regarding tariffs uh, is it, I, it it almost feels Ian like it's not a surprise that this is the one of the moves that President Trump wanted to make because of the reaction by the farming sector to what we've seen with the tariffs
0: yeah although you know if you look at the numbers um, you know, China was planning to implement uh, or has threatened to implement a 25% import tariff against uh, U.S. soybean exports, which is about approximately $12, $13 billion worth of exports from the U.S. Um, uh, Purdue University just put out some analysis that suggested if that tariff went into place, there would be about a 65% reduction in U.S. exports to China. So that's about $8 billion worth of exports. But as I look through um, the countries in the TPP uh, that that would likely import uh, soybeans, uh, none of them are anywhere near as such a large importer as China. So, for example, Japan imports 1.5 billion, Mexico imports 1.6 billion. Um, I'm not sure there's enough demand in those countries uh, to, to make up the difference between. What we lose in exports to China and what we might gain in imports to members of the TPP. I I think if we were to revisit the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think the gains to U.S. agriculture would be in other sectors, such as the beef sector, the dairy sector, the wheat sector and the rice sector.
1: Josh, for for those that that don't follow this uh, that closely, uh, the United States potentially would be back part of this TPP alignment. Uh, but uh, President Trump also noted that they have bilateral deals with six of the 11 countries that are involved in the in the CPTPP. Uh, if if there is something brokered uh, between. The current members of the TPP and the United States. What impact, if any, does it have on those other bilateral deals?
2: Well, a couple of things. One is that the bilateral deals continue in parallel with the TPP. And um, the TPP essentially was um, an upgrading in many respects of those deals. So, for instance, um, you know, there's obviously the North American Free Trade Agreement, which um, you may recall in 2008, President Obama talked about renegotiating and in many respects. The TPP was the renegotiation of the NAFTA deal um, as Canada and Mexico were part of a larger agreement. And the way the ne- US ended up negotiating the TPP was that it essentially negotiated separate market access commitments with each individual TPP member. So, this sort of claim which the administration and Trump in particular has been making that, you know, multilateralism is sort of not good and the US doesn't leverage its bargaining power to the maximum and it can do that more effectively. And bilateral deals doesn't really hold up if you understand how, in fact, the TPP um, was negotiated. Uh, but, you know, the TPP goes a lot further than these bilateral deals. And you can see the key areas of interest for the United States, in particular, in the areas where this comprehensive TPP has actually... Uh, the, part, the, the 11 parties have decided to put on hold a lot of key commitments into intellectual property, for instance, um, and on various other aspects that were of importance to the United States. Um, and that's where a lot of the gains were going to be to the United States and these types of stronger rules. mm
1: mm-hmm. So then, if if the if the president has asked uh, Mr. Lighthizer and Mr. Cudlow to to look and see what can be done, what would they be looking to do? Especially if the original thought on on TPP going back a year or two was that it was a fairly good deal for the U.S.
2: Well, this is where I think it's going to be a really challenging um, negotiation, and I said at the beginning that I think there's a long path through the U.S. getting there because there's two aspects to this. One is that You know, the notion that Trump put out that these were all bad deals was based clearly on not actually knowing what was in these deals. Um, The US negotiates hard and does that every time it negotiates a trade agreement and the TPP was deeply um, valuable for the United States and reflected US interests in all key areas. Um, But the US would actually start essentially, you know, as a supplicant in some senses because just to get back to where the TPP was, to have all these IP provisions reinstated would itself be a tough negotiation for the United States. But that, does, that just gets us back to the deal that Trump originally said was not a good deal. So he's going to have to get something more to politically be able to say, hey, look, I renegotiated, it; it's now a good deal. And, you know, it's not clear to me where that would be. Um, you know, there's some issues around rules of origin, which Clinton was also talking about during the campaign, which could possibly be tightened up. Um, if we look at what the USCR has been asking in NAFTA as some signal or indication of where they're going, what they think a good deal might look like, you see that they put out some pretty strong claims initially, which actually went nowhere, and they're Mm -hmm. actually having to dial them back now in the effort to conclude the agreement. So I think keeping an eye on NAFTA and where that finishes up will probably give us a good sense of what at least the administration thinks is politically feasible in terms of them being able to say, hey, we've renegotiated and this is what a good deal looks like.
1: How difficult would it be to include the United States at this at this time in a in a TPP arrangement? There have been a, a variety of uh, of uh, economists and and members of these countries that are involved that said it would be a challenge right now. But if memory serves me, when we shifted from TPP to the new CPTPP, the eleven country uh, version. They had a lot of the the elements that would have linked in the U.S. Basically, kind of put on hold, if memory serves me. Correct, Josh?
2: No, that's right. And and these are the IP provisions I'm talking about. Look, the, the reason that the CPTPP, in part, has gone ahead, and this was really you know down in large part to you know Japanese leadership, was with the hope that the U.S. would eventually rejoin. So. You know, it's a a much less substantial agreement without the U.S., and I think that the TPP-11 would do what they can to actually find a pathway for the U.S. to get back in. I just think under this current president, it's going to be a very difficult way forward because his view of trade agreements generally is so unconventional and so essentially, you know, divorced from actually what they do to the U.S. economy, and providing him with a political win is going to be difficult. But I do think that these countries will... Do what they can to make that possible.
0: Ian, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I think that in backing out of the TPP, we we the US gave up uh, an opportunity to sign an agreement or to to ratify an agreement that, um, as economists note, has gone way beyond what we call shallow integration. Um, okay, they were going to cut eighteen thousand tariff lines in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But as, as, as Josh pointed out, TPP went a lot deeper in what economists call going behind the border to focus on things like rules on investment, services trade, uh, regulation of state-owned enterprises, uh, intellectual property rights, the environment, labor rules, etc. You know, this is where these mega trade deals have, have started to go in the last uh, 15 20 years as, um, you know, the WTO really doesn't deal with those issues uh, very well uh, at all. And I think that by backing away from it and then pursuing what looks like TPP light in the NAFTA renegotiations, I, I think the U.S. has gave up a lot. And as, as as Josh pointed out, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to 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 come away from uh, negotiations in with the CPTPP to get back to where we were with the TPP, um, you know, and I think there are other, you know, other economic arguments as to why the Trans-Pacific Partnership is, is a good idea. That you have, we have this noodle bowl of um, regional trade agreements in, in the Asia-Pacific region. You, you have the ASEAN agreement, where ASEAN covers a group of countries that are in the TPP. And ASEAN has six bilateral agreements with countries uh, such as Australia, but also including China and India. And I think the, sort of the long-term view was that TPP, which uh, candidate Clinton once described as the, as the gold standard of free trade agreements, yeah. was going to be used to push China, if China ever joined, to you know, accept the argument that you need tough rules on intellectual property rights. You need to stop state-owned enterprises subsidizing, receiving subsidies from the Chinese government, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm kind of with Josh here that... um, It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get beyond where we were with TPP to make it look like uh, the administration's achieved some sort of uh, victory, I guess, in the negotiations.
1: But Joshua, does does this potential move, if it goes forward, does this have any impact in the current back and forth between the United States and, and China over a variety of issues?
2: Um, in, in not not in the in the in the direct immediate sense, um, but in a, in a fundamental way, it, it's it's a key um, vehicle for achieving US goals. I mean, in, in many respects, what the US is looking for from China is some fundamental economic reform around issues to do with the role of state owned enterprise in the economy, you know, their censorship and the way they manage access online um you know investment practices and the like and you know the only way one of the key vehicles in fact for encouraging that reform and creating the incentives um in a stick way was the tpp in the sense it would have created costs on china for not being in this agreement it had rules in there such as on state and enterprise which were clearly designed um with china in mind um as the tpp expanded in the region it would have you know increased the cost of china of not being part of it and would have sort of empowered those within china who were reformists to consider going down that direction in order to join the TPP. And these are the types of sort of long-term strategic sort of visions that the United States requires is they're really going to get the type of outcomes in China that they need. They're not going to get that from tariffs. Um, You know, they're going to get some market access openings in a very transactional way, um, which may or may not actually actually bear any fruit for U.S. businesses. And so, in, in that respect, it's an important vehicle, but it's sort of going to be part of the broader context of how the US and its allies move China and help move China in a particular direction.
1: We are joined on the phone by Joshua Meltzer of the Brookings Institution and also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, Ian Sheldon from Ohio State University. Your comments are welcome at 844 Wharton eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. 942 Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at danloney twenty one prior Ian, to prior to the tariffs really being put into place uh or at least being announced by both sides uh what was the state uh, of the farming sector and the income that farmers were seeing anyway i've seen a couple of uh, articles refer to that that income was going to be headed lower anyway for uh for the current year to begin with
0: yeah um you know i listen to my colleagues out in Further out in the Midwest, uh, you know, we had we were talking with Dave Swenson uh, on the program on Monday about this very issue that, you know, since the peak of commodity prices, uh, we yeah, we've seen a fall in 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 farm prices. And this is putting downward pressure on farm income. And as I said on Monday, I think if you know, if I believe these Purdue numbers, that there would be a 65 percent reduction in exports by the U.S. of soybeans to China. That would really drive down world prices, which will then feed back into lower farm prices in the U.S., put downward pressure on farm income, and you've probably been reading about how the the, the administration and the, Ag, the 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 agricultural secretary, Sami Pedu, have been talking about how they can backstop farmers with uh, maybe buying up stocks of soybeans to to keep a floor on prices. But my colleague Dan Sumner. Uh, at uh, UC Davis mentioned on Monday, uh, this looks like a return to farm subsidies. Uh, It's going to put pressure on uh, the the U.S. budget deficit, which is going to be what I think I saw a forecast of a trillion dollars by 2020. And if these do look like subsidies to the U.S. ag sector, I think it then potentially we run the risk of Um, Brazil, for example, coming in and claiming that the U.S. is using farm subsidies to drive down world prices even further, which is exactly the case they won against the U.S. in cotton uh, a few years back.
1: And then, obviously, then that would create uh, a, a greater uh, level of angst uh, in amongst the the, the farm sector uh, in the United States, and obviously would would set up, as you kind of alluded to, uh, probably I would think for some sort of uh, of uh, a battle between the U.S. and a potentially a variety of countries. Correct?
0: Yeah, particularly the big exporters we compete with uh, Brazil, Argentina in in soybeans uh, mostly, but also in corn, and maybe. You know, Canada might get involved um, vis-à-vis the fact we compete with them on in the wheat market. And the European Union, we compete a little bit with them in, in, in some sectors. So, yeah, I mean, there's a potential for these unintended consequences of putting in place one set of policies that generate re- uh, retaliation by the Chinese. And then you get all these feedback effects. Although, you know, we're still waiting to see what, what the commentary is on The tariffs that the U.S. has announced and and the Chinese are certainly holding off to see exactly what the U.S. is going to do.
1: But again, you know, in terms of all of the items that that we would be talking about, uh, you both have mentioned about soybean, and, and obviously the amount of of soybean that the United States exports to China is a significant amount. I mean, that is that is a significant level of investment for farmers here in the United States that potentially is is being impacted by a twenty five percent tariff.
0: Correct. I mean, if you. China imports $34 billion worth of soybeans, of which the U.S. accounts for nearly 50%. If uh, those tariffs that China were to implement led to what I think I said earlier about a 65% cut in exports, Uh, in the short run it drives down prices. Potentially the U.S. loses market share to um, Argentina and Brazil and, you know, have this, this feedback effects into the farm sector, which is already in a difficult financial position. And I think there's, you know, the, the, the problem I always had with the pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership from the standpoint of agriculture was that the U.S. for a long time and other members of the WTO we have been pretty unsuccessful at pushing Japan to reform its farm policy and open up its agricultural sector And I think if we, by not signing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we run the risk of losing market share to Australia, who's already grabbed market share from the U.S. in the beef sector, and we stand to lose market share from partners like Canada and Mexico. But at the same time, Japan has signed a free trade agreement with the European Union, and that's going to allow the Europeans to get preferential access to Japan. So purely from the standpoint of agriculture... I think giving up access to China through starting a, potentially starting a trade war with them and then not getting that access to countries like Japan and other growing economies in, in the Asia-Pacific region, I think U.S. agriculture is really dependent on, on export markets, and this is not, it's not good for them.
1: Josh?
2: No, I mean, I I think that's absolutely right. Um, You know, the Japanese have always, I think, made clear that essentially a deal with the United States um, was going to be crucial if they were going to undertake the necessary reforms that they wanted to undertake but have always had difficulty doing domestically um, in the agriculture sector, certainly um, services and other areas. And, in fact, you know, PMR was always very clear that for him... This agreement was about a tool for you know driving these types of domestic reforms. You had these three arrows, and you know the TPP was one of them. Right. Um, and in many respects, the agriculture community—if you look at the beef sector—you know when, when Australia did their free trade agreement with Japan, which gave them better market access into Japan, the administration's response at the time was, well, "We'll get you something better under the TPP," um, which they did. But then you know they pulled out, and so. You know, you've got all these kind of second and or third order effects where countries have been negotiating bilateral trade agreements and continue to do so. And having pulled out of the TPP and actually having no real vehicle for any other major trade agreement, you know, the U.S. Ag sector and, you know, other traders broadly are continually being disadvantaged by the um, you know, progress that other countries are making under other trade
1: agreements. And, and the thing that a lot of people have discussed, Josh, is because the original intent of of the the move to put tariffs in place was because of the issues surrounding steel. And realistically, steel, while it is, you know, he, sent here to the United States, is it is not a, a, you know, a massively significant amount. I believe it's like a, a very small percentage. And, and to start that, because of that, seemingly, you know, is to a degree, it feels like it's backfiring. Yeah, so the
2: steel-specific um, tariffs, well, certainly when it comes to China, it's, it's. I think around three percent um, of of imports of steel are from China, and you know we've seen that the US has now started to exempt, um, you know, Canada and Mexico and other so uh, other allies, which actually count for the majority of um, steel um, imports into the United States. So, you know, the, the the nominal aim that came out of this Section 232 report was to return production um, to about 80% of capacity. And it's not even clear how they achieve that as they start exempting so many countries. Um, but, you know, in many respects, the the costs of this to the US economy are gonna be absolutely negative. If you look back to the steel tariffs in 2001, 2002 under the Bush administration, you know, it was clear that the job losses, for instance, um, I mean, the economy well and surely exceeded any job gains in the specific steel-producing sectors. And I think we're going to see something similar with this time around.
1: Well, where's I, just, well I was going to yeah. say, so where specifically do you think, I mean, the average consumer that, again, somebody that doesn't follow this on a day-to-day basis, where are they going to see that impact come forward?
2: Well, you know, the, the 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 steel producing sectors broadly across the economy. So whether we're yeah. talking about you know consumer appliances such as washing machine, drying machine, um, you think about cars, you think about steel that goes into the energy sector, um, which has been very disappointing. You know, the costs of you know pipes and and the like. So it's a broad based um, economic impact. There's actually analysis which has been done which says which shows that. Um, in, in the face of these tariffs and taking into account some of the proposed retaliation and the job losses broadly in the economy could be 18 times higher than any job gains in the steel producing sector.
1: Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Joshua Meltzer of the Brookings Institution joining us, along with Ian Sheldon of Ohio State University. I, I would imagine, Ian, that, that we're at a point right now, obviously, that this announcement has been made, but we are still a very, very long way away from seeing some sort of final agreement that the United States has joined the TPP.
0: Oh yeah, we're a long ways off. I mean, I, I read the New York Times column this morning as I before I came to work, and I think this caught everybody in uh, the administration by surprise. Um, but I I'm you know I'm in favour of uh, at least them revisiting uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It it just strikes me as bizarre that you would throw away. Uh, negotiations that lasted for what seven years and led to a significant agreement uh, that was going to be very beneficial to the u s we throw it away and now we want to renegotiate it again yeah. it, it's you know it 's just bizarre behavior as far as as i 'm concerned josh yeah so um
2: the, I, I think it was um certainly um Earlier, earlier this year, the World Economic Forum, I think where Trump sort of floated the idea of um, joining the TPP and we haven't seen any sort of significant follow-up, and I think this seems to be a real of that. It's really not clear, frankly, how serious he is. Um, to what extent this is sort of an attempt to appease the agriculture sector by sort of saying, look, you know, we'll get back into this agreement, though in the short term there are going to be real costs to them as this sort of um, tit-for-tat trade war, if it actually is implemented, um, escalates. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, as I said before, I think that... Um, Yeah, there's no confidence that the administration at this point has got an end game in terms of what a trade deal looks like for them that's actually doable for other countries. Um, When when Trump was in Asia for his tour with China and ASEAN and other countries in November last year, he made this offer of doing bilateral trade deals with anyone who was interested. I mean, normally under another administration, countries are queuing up to do trade deals with the United States. No-one has taken the US up on that offer except, I think, the Philippines. So... You know, and and it's, it makes sense because no one has, no one's confident that this administration's got a view of trade or a sense of what a trade agreement should look like that is politically doable for any other country, um, or makes economic sense for that matter. So I think everyone's keeping a very close eye on how the NAFTA negotiations pan out because that's really the first major renegotiation, there was a conclusion of the CREA FTA, but that was really tinkering around the edges and doesn't provide sort of much, I think, indication of what they're looking for to claim a big win. And I think if that looks sort of within the ballpark of what is sensible, then we may see more willingness to go forward. And the other thing to consider is what does a congressional strategy here look like in terms of actually getting any of this stuff passed?
1: Great having you both with us today. Joshua, thank you for your time. Ian, as always, thank you again. Thank you. Thank Thank you you both.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.